This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. Hello, hello, hello. After the chat, the boys are back in this episode of the Doctor Who podcast. We will be reviewing some DVDs and collecting some opinion about the way of the world in Doctor Who. Welcome to another episode of the Doctor Who Podcast, episode 214, 214, if you're keeping count at home. It's my great pleasure to be here in the camper van today with my good friend James. Hello, James. Hello, Trevor. Hello, everybody. Sounding slightly nasally, but soldier on, soldier on. I will. It's just hay fever. And in the other corner is the (laughs) ever-present, effervescent Tom. Hello there. How are you? Well, I wish I could be more present, but yes, it's nice to be here. Well, as Tom said, we are reviewing a couple of DVDs today, and um, in preparation for this, the the two stories that we're going to be talking about have kind of melded in my mind into one big, long, ten-part story. So I'm sort of thinking of this as the uh, planet of the giant ambassadors of death. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they are rather large, certainly. (laughs) The actors in the space... spacesuits at least yes but it does feel like a very long time since we've discussed classic coup and an even longer time since we've discussed um, a story presented on the shiny disc but uh, but just, just before we get into that Tom it's, it's been some time since uh, since you've been on the show and uh, we, mm. we, we feel like we're welcoming you back <laughs> almost I'm every really time sorry, we run. Right? <laughs> <laughs> not at all but you, you haven't had a chance to discuss either with Trevor or with I or indeed with the listeners uh, your views on Matt Smith's departure and who indeed you may wish to play uh, the 12th doctor if indeed he is the 12th well okay there's a couple of things we can just get straight out of the way i i, I discovered this when i was actually i was actually in wales uh when i when i heard received the news of matt smith's um that the, matt smith has, had handed in his notice and from what I, i've i've heard he actually handed in his notice quite some time ago uh, it's just that the announcement was very was very recent um i'm still waiting for the phone call from stephen moffat although yeah. i have had uh, a communication from him which says stop phoning me or i'll call the police but apart from that it's all quite good um <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it's interesting. I mean, one of the things we forget about Doctor Who is, of course, that it's it's predicated on change and development. And as time goes by, I, I, I'm. St- this is not how I measure my years but it's interesting to realise yes I saw Matt Smith's first moments on screen and then we'll see his last as well Uh, and it's it's always sad to say goodbye to a doctor but I think it's too early to uh, try and assess his uh, assess his era because we haven't seen how it finishes yet we don't know if he's the 12th doctor or the 11th doctor we we don't know how that story is going to go a brilliant cliffhanger um what I have found interesting is the discussion around it. I mean, ever since John Nathan Turner suggested it might be a woman, it might be someone who's uh, not of um, Anglo-Saxon descent, every time the regeneration comes up, then the, then these conversations start. And I've got to say, I mean, I, I know, I mean, I know, I know deep down that it won't be a woman, or it won't, and it won't be someone who's not of Anglo-Saxon descent. Um, but what I do find a little bit offensive is the wrong word what I find is a little bit sad saddening is the is the the assertion from some corners that it can't be a woman or a black person or it mustn't be um, which kind of plays with my whole idea of what I think Doctor Who's about and how inclusive it is and what it's and, and what it uh, and what its potential can be um, you know as you know most of the listeners will know I'm, you know, I'm, I'm black myself and one of the things about Doctor Who is that a good portion of my youth I thought I was Doctor Who because that's how the show that's how the show got to me um, exactly um, but you know, because, but, you know, but the, the important thing about that is that it was inclusive. Um, you know, if, if you know, without without doing a biography, for, it, there weren't very many black people in the south of England in in the uh, late part of the twentieth century when I was growing up. So to see this TV show about how it's okay, how it's okay to be different and how much you can contribute, and even even if people are telling you you're a bit weird, which people clearly were, people still do, frankly, um, you know, it was, it was a great thing. And I'm not sure that it's healthy to be able to say no, the doctor can't be a woman, or she mu- or he mustn't be a woman, because even in my own circle of friends, I'm aware of people who change their gender and who and who's and who's um, how can I put it whose whose makeup 
changes on a fundamental level. And I think things like Doctor Who, shows like Doctor Who, which talk about the importance of change and the uh, and the universality of change uh, and development, are it, it, it's important that we that we keep the options open. As I say, in my heart, I know that it won't be a woman and it won't be a black man, but. I, I, I just don't, I'm not very comfortable with the idea that of people who are saying it can't be or it mustn't be. But apart from that, um, it, it, I, I, I suspect the role's already been cast. Um, I would dearly love it to be a comedian called Peter Serafanovich, who, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know, I would love it if it was him. But, but it thinks he's got too much, I think he's got too much of a profile. Um, you know, he is too well known. You know, Matt Smith was known, but not that well known. David Tennant was known, but not that well known. Um, Peter Serafanovich is well known. Is he an actor? Yeah, absolutely. He is. I mean, I I don't know him very much at all, aside from the the comedy that I've seen on on, on TV, the the, the stand-up comedy. Mm. But But uh, that's why he's an actor. Comedians are actors. They have to be actors to be successful comedians. Well, they have to be performers. They don't necessarily have to be uh, an actor. No, 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 no. Some of the most successful comedians out there are ones that can act. Oh, yeah, I agree. I I agree. I mean, you look at people like Dave Allen, for example. He's a consummate comedian, but he's also... An incredible actor. I mean, half the skits wouldn't work if Dave Allen or even Peter Saranovich weren't good actors. Mm, exactly. So, I mean, you know, the, the obvious one that we pointed to is, will always be John Pertwee from the um, uh, from you know from the classic season, and I suppose yeah. to a lesser extent, yeah, yeah. Sylvester McCoy. He can't be the new Doctor, Tom. I'm sorry, he can't <laughs> be the new Doctor. There are several limiting there's, there's factors. One big thing again. I mean, this 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 may be controversial, but I don't think John Pertwee can be the Doctor. No, I'm sorry. So no, Mr. No. McCoy can no. be, though. And indeed, I mean, depending on whether or not you think what he was involved in in the Ken Campbell Roadshow qualifies as comedy, uh, but you could say he had, a, you know, um, a comedic background and he wasn't very well known for his drama roles. And again, I think that's true. I mean, what, what you say, Trevor, is absolutely right. There's, a, there's an awful lot of comedians out there who are fantastic actors. And sometimes getting comic timing right is, is the hardest thing to do in the entire industry. I've heard many actors say comedy is the hardest form of uh, performing to, to achieve successfully um, I, I, I don't know Peter Serafanovich I'm not even sure if I can even say his name and that would be terrible if I, if I had, had difficulty <laughs> pronouncing the doctor's name that's the one good thing about uh, Matt Smith I've never had too much difficulty with Smith yeah. Um, but and yeah it I don't be know easily. <laughs> yes, exactly <laughs> S-M-I-F um, <laughs> is, is there um, is there anyone else who you've seen in the bookmakers odds who you uh, you either like the idea of or, or don't like the idea of um well i, I, I saw M- uh, miranda hart got listed and she's just fantastic anyway um, there's, um there's, yeah. there, are, there are a few um P- uh, matt i think is it matt addison or chris, chris addison the guy from in the loop and the thick of it um that's he's you know, he's, he's got a bit of a look of tom baker about him there was also a suggestion of a chap called stephen mangan who's got the look and he could do it but to be honest i'm pretty sure that we're all looking in the wrong place because the actors who tend to get the role are known in the industry and no um but not really all over the tv mm. um, and that's kind of important because if you've got a quite a large profile or or, or or widely known it's going to be very difficult to transition into the doctor and i would go as far as to say um with only a few exceptions out of the 11 of them there are very few of them who've ever stopped being doctor who after the after, after the role's finished um and if you've got a profile before that it can be i think it can be hard um I mean, as I say, it can be argued Tom Baker never stopped playing Doctor Who, and the other, and certainly Sylvester McCoy, by his own admission, never stopped being Doctor Who. Um, but yes, yeah, someone like Stephen Mangan, someone like um, uh, Peter Serafanovich, who I would love it to be. As I say, they that they are too well known. Um, and one of the things, and one of the things about Doctor uh, about the role of the Doctor is that you become that role, and everything that came be- that happened before, although it happened is almost put into the background whilst you are this put whilst you mm. do this role and when, when, when even when you finish doing it you are still doctor who and, and you, you know there are there are several actors um, on earth right now who uh, when they pass away will will get that line in their obituaries was best known for playing doctor who did it oh yeah i i think so because the institution is larger than any one actor even you know christopher eccleston who you could be considered or could be considered to be the most successful and high profile actor ever cast i think uh, given his rsc heritage i know he was quite um quite a coup but i i, I think it's a little bit different these days eccleston isn't referred 
referred to as the doctor. I mean, it's always within some kind of interview. And the fact that he's declined to, to be in the 50th, I think he's, he's signing his own <laughs> death warrant almost on that scale. If you wanted to avoid uh, mention of the show in interviews when he's promoting other things, then he's just done the worst thing he could possibly do. He should have just done the thing. Mm. Um, but David Tennant, on the other hand, again, yeah, he's appeared at a couple of conventions, but, you know, he's 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 been quite... He's either been quite choosy about the roles he's taken on or, or work hasn't been as forthcoming. Um, and I'm not sure whether or not that is because of stereotyping or or indeed just because he is now in a position where he can pick and choose his roles. But I, I, I think certainly not being able to leave the character of the Doctor behind once an actor has left the role was something that was much uh, a much greater problem in the classic era. Mm. Uh, I think modern Who now should hopefully... I mean... Uh, with the exception of fandom, the real world allow them to move on and have different jobs. Oh, we're progressing nicely. Seen a lot more of those dead ants, Doctor. Yes, rather widespread, I'm afraid. Oh, dear, I wonder what would have happened to us if any of those creatures had still been alive. <laughs> yes, I wonder. I wonder. I'm exhausted. It's taken us ages to get here. What's that smell? Cordite? Gunpowder? Hmm? Yes. That would explain the explosion. And also the man. It's not far. Come on, I'll show you. Planet of Giants, I think, is a wonderful place to start. William Hartnell's story from his second season, and they've gone a very interesting direction with the story, I think. I mean, it's almost like they've had this uh, script for a spy-slash-conspiracy thriller hanging around, and they've grafted the Doctor and his companions into it, and they've also thought, hmm, let's copy that wonderful uh, Land of Giants uh, TV series from America where we have the humans in uh, sort of shrunk down into minuscule size and coping with everyday objects. It, it's it's a wonderful mishmash of a Doctor Who story. Hmm, definitely. I mean, I, I, I'm entirely with you on this. Um, my understanding of uh, about Planet of the Giants is that it was slated to be either the one of the, either the first or one of the first stories that Doctor Who ever told. Now, I'm really glad it didn't go that way, because as you say, what, what, what's very clear to me is, is a feeling of um, American Cold War uh, action-adventure series. And, and, you know, and you're right, it's, la- it's all about Land of the Giants. But the, the, I wouldn't say the characterisation is off, but the characterisation is other than we've come to expect from Doctor Who. It's very reliant in a way that um, early Doctor Who isn't um, on effects and sets and events that are running out of control before the t- before the um, uh, before the the main cast arrive. Um, but I, I, I don't know. If it, it, it seems to be less reliance on performances. Is 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 what I'm getting at? Well, when I think of oh, how- definitely, definitely, definitely. I mean, they 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 did an amazing job with presumably the incredible limited budget they had hmm. to realise some of the effects in there. I mean, the the sort of real time effects in this story. You know, giant ants, hmm. giant pencils, giant matchbooks. I mean, that that must have cost an absolute fortune for them to do, but. Um, on a Doctor Who budget, they've done incredibly well to realise, um, you know, a shrunk-down TARDIS crew basically trying to get from the bottom of the garden to the top of the garden. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and, that, that, and the giant telephone dilemma for murder. And there was a very... There's a, there's a very there's a very good um, a, there's a, a a bit of useful science I suppose when when um, uh, the miniaturised TARDIS crew are trying to use a telephone and of course the person on the end of the real size phone can't hear them because there's only so little air moving which I think which is which is fantastic um, but it's not Doctor Who as we know it from that period oddly it might work better as one of the new who episodes um, than it does for one of the original who episodes i mean th- does that really matter to a degree i mean are, are we only appreciating that from from hindsight because bearing in mind you didn't have you, di- you didn't even know how many episodes a particular story was going to have when you were watching this back in the 60s i mean you just come off the back of the reign of terror which was a six episodes almost a true historical which again you could argue is a very different kind of story uh, to the stories that went before that you had the censor rights before that and the Aztecs before that and directly after Planet of the Giants you had the Daleks coming back in Invasion of Earth I, I just think it's a wonderful little story and it, it's a Doctor Who story that I watched very late it was one of the very last 
uh, stories that I watched uh, when I was working my way through um, Classic Who for the first time. And I, I was always kind of thinking, well, at least I've got one story from the first Doctor to hang on to because I used to savour watching these <laughs> watching these stories. I didn't want to watch them all and then just have to start repeating them again. Um, and when I got to watch this, it, I just thought it was superb. Um, and even the video, the VHS that was released had um, a, a wonderful uh, treatment done. I think was Vidfire in existence at that point? I'm really not sure. But the the picture is fantastic and, and, and strangely it doesn't do the story any favours because it also highlights the flaws. Um, but the, the whole concept of getting into the bottom of the garden and gradually working the way up to the house, which incidentally is exactly the plot of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, um, which uh, which is one of the most successful um, children's films using this kind of concept. Uh, mm. I, I think someone must have seen Planet of Giants. I, I just think it's really, really good. The, the, the spy thriller that you mentioned, they've got Alan Tilvan playing you know the, the the big baddie if you like and it the interplay between the guest cast you know the, 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 without having the doctor susan or anybody anybody there it just works it was refreshing it was new and for me this kind of sets the stall out either intentionally or unintentionally that doctor who can do and will do anything and i i think we've got I a lot know. to be grateful I, for uh, for Planet I, of Giants. I would probably disagree with you slightly jay or probably a lot actually um i i wouldn't try and peg planet of giants as another story that sort of broke the mold like reign of terror um i i don't think stories like the preceding story of reign of terror um are any different to what we got in the first season. Doctor Who was an educational show, and we have stories like the Aztec, stories like Marco Polo. And then you look at the story that follows Planet of Giants, which is Dalek Invasion of Earth, mm. which again, which is something that heralds all the way back to the second story of Doctor Who, the Daleks. So we have Planet of Giants here, which is, I think, a very different story for the Doctor Who mould. It's not a historical it's not a uh, invasion story. It's a spy thriller. It's it, it's a weird conspiracy thing with some quite violent moments in it. I yeah. thought for a nineteen sixties story, um, I wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I would probably disagree with you again, James. My God, I'm doing this a lot today. Um, <laughs> I was I, I was quite frankly bored to death by all the stuff with the full sized humans and all the stuff with oh. the with the with with the <laughs> chemicals and oh I'm gonna have to, you know, impersonate this person when I ring the switchboard and, you know, try and convince the ministry to send me a nice signature so I can send out this thing. I mean, the the, the whole story is predicated on this um, large amount of I implausible points that would never stand up one week or one month beyond the actual story itself. Oh, you have um, no soul. <laughs> this is 60s pastiche. <laughs> the, the villain's main conceit was ringing the switchboard with a fake voice and then getting him to put them through to the ministry yeah. and use another fake voice to try and get them to sign a bit of paper for him. But wasn't that I mean, funny? How, Didn't you enjoy that? I mean, come on, you think of How does that work long term? How does our villain even think that's going to work one week away, oh. one month away, when they suddenly realise the real person is actually dead on the front lawn. But, I, mean, I know, but I mean, you look at some of the most implausible things that you see 20, 25 years uh, after this episode with like the master. Oh, he just turns back up even though he was burnt last time. No explanation at all. It, it, the spurious plot, point, plot points are part of Doctor Who. And for we me... We are talking I, about a story that tries to set a, a real Earth at the time, modern day Earth story, and I, I was just frankly bored by that. Oh. I was just dying to get back to all the stuff with the big pencils. <laughs> <laughs> that was and good too. The big signs or whatever, because I wanted to see the Doctor and companions. I didn't want twenty minutes of um, mustache twirling and phone calls and old people on switchboards getting confused by fake voices. I, no. Trevor, it's interesting that you say that you were bored and James, that you were enthralled. I mean, Sydney Newman, head of drama, um, had a bit of an issue with this. With, with this. Now, um, we should talk about this as it's been released. Now, uh, this is released as a, as a, as potentially a four-part story on DVD. Now, when it was first broadcast, it was cut down to a three-part story um, at, at the request of Sydney Newman, who was head of drama at the time, who thought, um, possibly in line with Trev, that the four episodes were just a little bit slow. So one was cut, so three and four were cut down uh, to make uh, for a slightly pacier drama, which I think is maybe what James is reacting to. It works. Now, I've got to say, I think it works. Yeah. I, it, the pacing's good. 
See, I, I, I agree with that. It works a lot better than the uh, original concept of episode three and four, which Ian Levine has put together, courtesy of you know, the voices of William Russell and Caroline Ford and a few ring-ins like Toby Hadoke. You get to see that as an extra on the DVD. You, you get to see episodes three and four as they were originally scripted. And, and that, that's the important point, as it was scripted, not as it would have gone out had it been made. Because bear in mind, episode four, you know, it, it was lost and it, it, it's been kind of cut and pasted together. And because of the way it's been done, which is not, I don't think, particularly fantastic. I mean, it's, it's a very difficult project anyway because you don't have those images from episode four. So you're having to create some, you're having to reuse some from previous episodes. I don't think that does it any favours. And you're right, when you watch episodes three and four together as presented on a DVD, it makes it far, far more of a slog to get through. I found it really, really difficult to watch. I, I sat there um, at the beginning, or probably I watched the first 15 minutes of the new version of episode three and I, I had to give up i really did i mean sure the performances were interesting it was great to have william russell there you know voicing some of the extra dialogue and caroline ford um <clears throat> but they, they they used all stock footage from episode three and two i mean it was like a really bad fan production and and i, I just lost the will to live because um not only were we getting shots we'd already seen from episode three used in the extended version we were getting People like Toby Hidoke, who, I mean, bless him, he's, he's a fantastic comedian, but he took on the role of the, the main villain in this story in the extended version. When you hear his voice after having heard the original's voice, yeah, it's too you just high. go, well, it's this, this just, just mm. sounds terrible. It, it just sounds like a bad fan production. Oh, I, I think what's really important, and I wish I'd done this when I was watching the DVD, is not to watch the episode three and four reconstruction First, what I think the best thing to do is is to watch the documentary that shows how they did it because it describes quite clearly the limitations uh, that you know this team uh, of people and led by Ian Levine um, were subject to. They were working under extremely difficult conditions, and I think that actually re- well, no, it realigns your expectations. You you don't just if you just select the option to watch three and four together and you believe it's going to be an exact representation of what episode four would have been like, then of course you're going to be disappointed. If you watch that 10, 15 minute documentary first, you see that they recorded all of the lines in Ian Levine's back room. Um, a lot of the images that they had were just literally cut and paste together and it was done on absolutely practically no budget whatsoever, then it does actually realign your expectations. And for me, that that, that would have helped had I done that. No, I, I, I just don't understand when you sit there and watch Planet of Giants and the chemical conspiracy story is frankly boring. It really is boring. Well, that's subjective, Ian isn't Levine it? Sits there, Ian Levine sits there and watches it and goes, hmm, that could do with being twice as long. And then goes and films the original, the, records the audio for the original scripted version. Uh, I, it, it's it's a worthy project, I suppose, but it would have been interesting on a different story that was actually more engaging. Well, I, I, thinking about it, 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 if you don't know, okay, so listeners, if you don't know who Ian Levine is, look him up. Um, it could be argued that Doctor Who has never had quite, uh, uh, quite as vocal and uh, uh, and as active as a fan as Ian. Um, and what he's done here is he's gathered together, as you can as you can uh, imply, he's gathered together the surviving actors, got together some very talented impersonators, uh, and revoiced the uh, the missing episode. Now I think what it's what what really comes out of this number one, Ian loves the show, but number two, how much of the episode is is dependent on the actor's realization of it because Ian sorry sorry so William Russell Carol Ann Ford okay for them they have you know they've they've been doing big finish for some time. And they can st- and they can to a certain extent step back into their roles, but for the per- for the chap who's playing the first Doctor, the chap who's and and the actor who's playing Barbara, I think they've got a slightly taller order. Um, and one of the things that I realised is that I've got I've got I've got very used to the way William Hartnell and. Um, 
Jacqueline Hill uh, actually act and the way that they made those characters come to life. And it's just the fact that, it, that you know, the, the, the fact is any other actor can't do it. They just cannot do it. And so constantly I was having to run to, to bridge the gap between what I was seeing and what I was hearing and what I knew to be true. Um, I, I think, Trev, I'm actually with you on this. It's a very worthy project, but I'm not sure how successful it was i'm really glad that ian took the time and the money to make it and do it and of of itself and for itself it's probably it's it's very it's probably very successful but unfortunately um when he's standing up next to the actual performance of william hartnell he gets a certain amount of flack which which Um, is why you can't do that which is why you can't do that it's interesting you say whether it was well you say it's not quite successful i think that depends very much on what he was trying to achieve he Mm. he wasn't trying to recreate episode four in the same way that you can watch episodes one to three he Mm. was saying that look the production team at the time made a decision to truncate it and we'd like to give you an idea of what it would have been like had that decision not been taken and i think if that is their objective then they achieved it pretty pretty well given Mm. the fact that several of the actors are no longer with us you know i think on 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 balance i would rather see it than not see it and and i'll say again you know if it weren't for ian i don't know you know he's done an awful lot for doctor who i know i know he gets very passionate but at the same time i'd rather he was there doing what he does than not you know which which is exactly how i feel about it um uh, it, was it was it worthwhile exercise? Yeah, of course it is. You know, Doctor Who fans, we want to, we, you know, we're always thinking about what might have been, and it was interesting. It was interesting to see it. Did I enjoy it? Yeah, it's okay of itself, but it, I don't know. Could I live without it? If it wasn't on the desk, I'd want to see it as it is on the desk. I'm like, well, okay, I don't have to watch it again. So yeah, it, 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 it's. <laughs> <laughs> It's all, it's all right. That's having you know. your cake and eating it. That really is, Tom. That it really is, is. It is rather, isn't it? But, yeah, I, 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 I the disc I'll... allows you to do that. <laughs> Therefore, why not? Oh, true. I mean, I, I, I mean the uh, disc is laid out perfectly. There, if you never want to see the extended version, you don't have to. It's it's in the special features area. You, I mean, you're, you're not forced to watch it. Mm. The same way you're not forced to watch the uh, uh, movie version of Enlightenment. Absolutely. Or Fire, for example. Absolutely. And, and both of them are dire as well. So, um, oh, good lord. In your opinion. Yeah. <laughs> Bear in mind also, when we spoke to Ed Stradling about this, uh, he was at the point where he was going, well, I had absolutely no idea of what else to include because there is, there is so little information about this story available. Um, so many of the people who are involved in it are no longer with us. Um, and therefore, you know, he, he even consulted fandom on this. He said, well, what, what would you like? And overwhelmingly, people said, we'd like to see what Ian Levine has done. And it's the one project that Ian Levine has successfully managed to pitch. I'm not sure if it was to Two Entertain or BBC Worldwide at this point. Uh, but he's managed to get one of his projects on a disc and and Tom I think you you put it perfectly if you like it you can watch it if you don't like it you don't have to watch it again mm. and the original transmitted aired story is still there and it looks fantastic they've they've done amazing things to the image and it's a quirky different 1960s first doctor story that personally I really enjoyed revisiting well maybe that's a conversation we can revisit with our next dvd review the third doctor story ambassadors of death doctor Can you see the object? What is it? Some kind of spaceship. It's enormous. Can you evade it? I'll try. He hasn't got the speed. He's still linked to Mars Probe 7. How much fuel has he got for manoeuvring? Precious little. What he's got, he'll need for re-entry. the capsules would be smashed to fragments ambassadors of death uh, one of the stories from uh, john pertley's first series as the doctor and for, for me ambassadors of death has always been one of those stories that i don't know has been one of the forgotten stories of doctor who it's one story in that season i think that's overshadowed by all the ones that are around it like spearhead from space inferno doctor who and the silurians for example um i, I think it was one of the last stories from that season to get a VHS release and a DVD release. Um, Certainly it it, it was the last story from that season to finally get the uh, proper colorization treatment, both on VHS and DVD. Um, It's it's one of those stories that I think um, a lot of people forget 
there's actually a Doctor Who story, and it was an absolute pleasure to actually uh, revisit it recently. Yeah, I, I think the reason why people do kind of uh, not think of this when you're considering Season 7 is because... Firstly, the other stories that you mentioned are generally regarded as absolute classics. And also because the original print uh, of, of this story was extremely difficult to colorize. I think this is probably the longest um, it's taken to restore any story where they've had either black and white or original prints. I think it was just episode one where the original digital color copy existed. And I'm sure I'm using the wrong terminology there. It has the same problem, I think, that Mind of Evil did whereas Mind of Evil had a better colour copy to be able to merge in with the uh, black and white Perhaps. copy. I mean, I've got to be honest, I wouldn't want to go into the technical side of things for, for me because I simply don't understand it. But uh, but now that I've been able to, to, to watch it, uh, it's another seven-episode story, I have to say it stands up. It stands up um, even when you compare it to the stories that surround it. It is it's a... I, I I loved it basically. I, I thoroughly enjoyed revisiting this this story as well. Uh, people say seven episodes is always going to be too long, irrespective of how good the quality of the story is. And I I would contend that just don't watch it all in one go. Watch it one episode at a time. Almost as it was transmitted, I very rarely watch two or three episodes of Doctor Who together, which is why the BFI screenings have been absolutely revelatory for me. I mean, I sat through all of the two Doctors yesterday in one sitting. Um, <laughs> and that's still shorter than the ambassadors of death but i would say i enjoyed the ambassadors of death oh to an infinite degree more than the two doctors well i think too that um it's it's, it's interesting we're talking about planet of giants as well it has some of the same problems that both stories have a hell of a lot of padding i mean when you sit down and analyze both of them there is a lot of stuff that you know you could excise a lot of running around you could excise from both stories and make them infinitely shorter but i think what works for ambassadors of death is that um even though you might subconsciously or even consciously recognize it as padding and time wasting you aren't really resenting the fact. I mean, I sat there again today for the second time in two weeks and watched it in one sitting. Oh, wow. I, I, <laughs> I didn't resent it at all. I mean, Ambassadors of Death definitely is one of those forgotten stories for me. Um, I, I watched it probably really for the first time properly a few months ago um, when I got hold of the DVD and then again yesterday when we were going to prepare for this episode and both times I really enjoyed it because I think one thing I enjoy about these seven episode stories is it gives the chance for the actors to pause and actually stand there and act I mean they don't have to rush around and fit stuff into a 45 minute or 90 minute uh, uh, structure they can stand there and think about plot points and then move to the next scene and then have some really exciting chase scenes and some fantastic action scenes in the story, courtesy of uh, the uh, Havoc boards. Mm. Um, there, there's a lot to love about Ambassadors of Death. And for me, it, it's it's one of those stories that even eclipses some of the other Havoc-heavy stories like Mind of Evil um, for, you know, the, the, you know, the quality of the action scenes. Mm. I mean, that, 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 that's interesting. I mean, well, the thing I've managed to pick up from this is that it is when it's set. In, the, in, the, in John Pertwee's era. Now, I don't know when it was filmed. I don't know if in those days they were filming out of sequence in the way that we do now. Um, but what's very interesting to me is that this is the... Th I think I think you mentioned it. It's the, this is the third of the third Doctor's stories right. to, to hit the screen. That's right. And, and I... Like Inferno, I hadn't realised how... How... What's the word I'm looking for? Um, how kinetic... Um, the third doctor was how James, how quite James Bond like he was. Because by the time I got to, by the, by the time I started watching Pertwee episodes, it was pretty, it was near the end. It was like things like the Green Death, and it was, I mean, I didn't see them the first time round, but the first Pertwee episodes I saw were Green Death, um, Death to the Daleks, things like that. Mm. Um, but there's <clears> a certain <throat> excitement. And there's a certain, and you know, people have always said James Bond and lots of action hero, an action hero about the Third Doctor. I've never quite seen it, but things like Ambassadors, Ambassadors of Death bring it for you know, bring it right to the fore. Um, mm. Pert, 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 he was dynamic. He was kinetic. He was rushing about. He was an action hero, it, and it's it, it's actually brilliant. Um, I, I can see that Caroline John was possibly a little bit miscast because um, Pert, we didn't. Uh, she was a bit too strong a character, I think. Um, oh, I, I, is that? 
miscasting, or is that just the way that they designed the character? Listen, don't, don't get me wrong. It's not a slur on 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 the acting job that Caroline John did. Um, it's just this. It, I think it's just an indication that the characterization of the Third Doctor hadn't been quite realised. You know, I don't think I don't think anyone knew what Pertwee would bring to it. Um, and I think there's a lot more potential in Liz Shaw. Um, then was eventually realised. You can see her, but I think by the time you get to Inferno, you can see her straining at the bonds of, at, at the bounds of that character, um, and it's certainly here. You know that, that character does not look comfortable with. Ooh, Doctor, why Doctor? How Doctor? What's that Doctor? Explain. She knows. She doesn't need the Doctor. <laughs> she really doesn't need him. No, but she, she does play quite an important role. Even yeah, all right, you're oh, quite she right. She is captured and she's locked in that cell in the middle of a wasteland or whatever. But she's not one of those who just just sits there and waits to be rescued. I mean, she was thinking all the time how can i get rid of the guards um you know it, it was it, it, there was point. active um thoughts in a way that you wouldn't have expected from proceeding or, or in some cases many preceding companions <laughs> that's uh, for me <laughs> I, I i i just absolutely love um liz shaw she's she's probably my favorite third doctor companion um, and, and certainly rates up very high on my list. And I, I just think it was a shame that the production crew didn't really know what to do uh, with a very strong-minded companion, which is why, basically, I think she was disposed of quite quickly yeah. uh, at the end of Inferno. And, and someone who they were far more comfortable with in uh, <laughs> Joe Grant was was created. I think so much of the supporting cast in this story could really get a chance to shine. I mean, I mean, we don't really see much of the what, what you call regular unit crew, but we see Benton there, and he and he gets some quite nice stuff towards the end of the story. And uh, Nicholas Courtney is the brigadier in episode seven. He's in there bashing it around with the villains mm. like no one's business. Good, He's having it? a fantastic time. But um, and and even some of the other supporting characters, like the uh, television news presenter from the BBC, he, he gets a lot of nice stuff to do. And the uh, guy that's running the space centre. Um, he's throughout the entire story, and he's a very, very strong character. Um, all of the incidental characters are really well fleshed out, and, um, you know, you really understand where they're coming from. Trevor, you mentioned Benton. I have a feeling this was the first story in which he was a sergeant. Hmm. I the think last so, time we yes, saw him, yes. he, he, he was a more junior rank. I can't remember what it was now. Corporal. Corporal Yeti, yes. <laughs> Corporal Yeti. <laughs> <laughs> but Derek Ware was in this as well, um, who I think went on to do a lot of stuff with the uh, with the Havoc team. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could, I mean, could, could be wrong there, but uh... well, from what the uh, extras on the uh, DVD say, this is pretty much the first time that Havoc as a unit was used on a, a Doctor Who story. That um, Derek Ware basically said, "Well, I'm not getting paid enough doing what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm going to go off and create Havoc, yeah. and you know, really earn what I'm supposed to be earning for doing all these." Uh, crazy stunts. Um, I, I really have to give a call out here to the uh, director of the story, Michael Ferguson. Um, they spent a lot of time on the DVD talking about his involvement with the story and uh, his involvement with the, you know, the action scenes and the copious amount of location footage and uh, shots that were done. Um, I think that really adds an air of quality to the story because I think I, I wouldn't be wrong to say that probably more than half this story is shot on location. Oh, and yeah. And it adds, adds, yeah, yeah. adds a real um, air of authenticity to it. And then coupled with the uh, multiple times that Havoc have their chance to uh, do you know, do, do, do their action set pieces, um, it, it, it just really adds to the story as a whole, I think. No, I agree. I think Ambassadors and Silurians, there's, there's quite a lot of uh, location shooting. And you're right, it, it really assists help create that um, action atmosphere that, that, that Tom was alluding to earlier and, and, and you're right I think certainly the early John Pertwee stories uh, certainly season, season 7 and some of season 8 that really created the whole James Bond action feel but it was very compartmentalised you know you would have uh, a, a soft scene that you know John Pertwee sitting there with his, um, his hand on his chin and he's reasoning things through with a brigadier and then almost you've got 20 minutes of a chase sequence and it's like right that's that's done now now we'll move on to something else it was it was something that Doctor Who hadn't really done before and and the seven episode format I'm certain was for, for, for budgetary reasons but for me it's it's a very good example of how important the story is it doesn't actually matter what the format is it doesn't matter how long an episode is it's how you let the story unfold with the uh, within the constraints that are 
are foisted upon you. And for me, you're right. The direction, I think, was fantastic. Michael Ferguson, I think, got into trouble on the amount that he spent. Uh, I don't know if it was this particular story or whether it was was, was Mind of Evil. Um, but I know that he was responsible for the single largest overspend uh, of any poetry <laughs> story. Um, also, we, we've got... Uh, we were talking about actors earlier on who we recognise coming up again uh, in, in future stories. But uh, Jeffrey Beavers within this story as well, uh, a future master uh, as Private Johnson. And I'm not quite certain whether or not that was uh, a role as part of the action team, the Havoc team, or whether he was just almost an, an extra. But he does get a credit, so presumably he has a couple of lines. I just didn't notice him when I was watching it. I think you're bang on the money too, James. I mean, the seven episodes, I think, really allows the story to breathe. And the one of the central characters in this, General Carrington, you really see his entire journey from go to woe, you know, from the beginning of episode one to the end of episode seven, where he does that incredibly dignified um, uh, putting of the cap on his head when he's arrested at the end of the story. Um, you, you really feel for that character. And, and he passes by the doctor at the end of episode seven and said, you understood what I did, didn't you? You, you understood I did it for the country. And the doctor looks at him and goes, yes. I understood what you did. I mean, but I think you could really only get that in a seven-episode format where you have lived and breathed these characters for, you know, hours and hours. I think you're right, and I think that's precisely what Malcolm Hulk added to Doctor Who on the whole. He always made the, the, the perceived villains much more rounded, and he always kind of explains their motives as well, and that's evident throughout all of uh, season seven, in my view. Well, let's, let's give credit to Terence Dix, I think, because I think he worked hand and glove alongside Malcolm Hulk, his uh, long-term uh, writing Indeed. partner, yeah. and, and, and was certainly very involved with crafting what we saw you know, in, in, in the latter episodes of the story. Oh, no question. Terence Dix was script editor at the time. He would have had uh, some kind of say, definitely. But as, as you say, he worked very closely with, uh, with, with Mac Hulk and was responsible for his introduction to, to Doctor Who. But, uh, but for me, I have to say, this, this is one story that I will go back to. And it was really interesting, um, what you said earlier, Trevor, that you watched it twice in the last couple of weeks in one sitting both times. And it didn't feel like you'd spent, what, ne- <laughs> nearly seven hours watching, watching the same story. <laughs> <laughs> wow. No, that's right. I mean, I, I didn't resent it at all. I mean, uh, you know, there was probably certain bits where you could say, you know, they did this two hours ago or, that, that you know, it's a very similar setup in terms of capture, escape, capture, escape. But I think that we're so invested in the characters across all these hours of the story, you know, three or four hours of story, that we don't resent the fact that, you know, they might re-engineer one slight plot point to revisit maybe an hour or two later. And remember, too, that we're not watching it the same way that, uh, I I suppose, original watchers of the show. They would have watched it across seven weeks. So these repetitious points mightn't have been as obvious as what we're seeing when... I'm seeing it in one city. True, but uh, they, they certainly would have realised that this was reflecting what was going on in, in the real world. And, of course, there's, there's a whole DVD extra uh, that focuses on the uh, the, the parallel uh, that can be drawn between Mars Probe 7 and I think it was the Apollo mission at the time. Is that correct? I mean, I might be slightly wrong on the times there. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that, James, because, um, you know, we talked about just before with Planet of Giants about how it's difficult to produce... Uh, extra content for the DVD. And, and I was a little bit disappointed we didn't end up with a lot more on this double disc set. Um, we got a 25-minute making of, which, as you say, does draw the parallels between Apollo 13 and the broadcast of Ambassadors to Death. But that 25 minutes uh, extra also spent 15 minutes talking about the Havoc team and precious little else. And I, I was disappointed we didn't get maybe a little bit about the restoration, you know, some of the stuff behind that, because that's the sort of stuff that I personally am really interested in, how they are able to realise this uh, colour version of Ambassador of Death. I, I, I think, on the whole, the thing that I look for on any of these DVDs now is the making of, first and foremost. And uh, the older the story, the more interesting I generally find it, maybe because the harder the production team have had to work to produce it. But uh, but for me, yeah, I mean, the, the Tomorrow's Times is on there as well, which is 
a commentary on Doctor Who in the media um, at the time these stories were, were aired. And this one's about the third Doctor. And for some reason, Peter Purvis is uh, <laughs> is fronting it. I've never been a big fan of that particular segment. But in all honesty, uh, I would have bought this had there been no special features. And the commentary on here, the commentary is amazing. Caroline John, Nicholas Courtney, Peter Halliday, Jeffrey Beavers, Michael Ferguson, Terence Dix, Derek Ware, Roy Scammell, Derek Martin, and Toby Hadok <laughs> over the seven episodes, not all. The commentary is the reason to buy this DVD if you want the extras, because there's precious little else. I mean, I probably would have been more happy if they renamed the making of something to do with Havoc, because that really was what the extra was about. It was about the creation of the Havoc team, what they did on an, on the on the story, um, rather than an actual making of the you know the actual story itself. Um, yeah, I, I I just felt that maybe the extras were slightly lacking on this, especially it was a especially as it was a, a two DVD set. Well, I have to say, it's been a lot of fun talking about Classic Coup, and uh, I, I just just doing the preparation for this episode, watching those DVDs, watching those episodes again, is something that uh, I really, really enjoyed. And uh, despite us watching so much Doctor Who on, on television this year, talking about it, being slightly disappointed about the new Doctor Who, it's been, it's been incredibly refreshing to do that. Um, and one of the things that we've also been receiving some, some feedback on, because listeners, you've been very vocal about what you've been hearing on the Doctor Who podcast recently, and that's absolutely wonderful it's a couple of calls for ian and michelle's return uh, to review some of the big finishes now we, we haven't heard from ian and michelle together for, for some time but i'm pleased to say they've been listening to some more big finish they've been listening to some tom baker uh, stories and here they are talking about the antimatter oh, i get that a pun Anti-matter, anti-matter. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Big finish with Ian and Michelle from across the Atlantic Ocean. Ian from the UK and Michelle from the United States. Reviewing Big Finish. Sorting out the wheat from the chaff and nonsense. Saving you money on the ones that are not so good. This week we're looking at The Antimatter, the first story in Season 2 of The Fourth Doctor Adventures from Big Finish. This is the first story featuring Mary Tam as Romana, and in this first story they find themselves in 1920s London while they're still escaping from the Black Guardian. You did what? I told you I linked the randomizer to the TARDIS guidance systems and left it on automatic in a low oven. So now the TARDIS is flitting randomly throughout time and space? Yes, until the Black Guardian gets tired of chasing it, and then it will return to us here in London, eventually. Eventually? Oh, after it's visited a thousand worlds or so, it shouldn't take more than a couple of weeks, a month at the most. And in the meantime, Doctor, we're stuck here on Earth. Well, the thing that makes this season particularly special, as you mentioned, is that it's got Mary Tam playing uh, Romana One opposite Tom Baker. And that I think that's one of the, the real highlights of this story. And we'd heard her do Romana in some companion chronicles, but, you know, there's just nothing like putting her opposite Tom Baker and getting that, that uh, dynamic back. But a little bit less excited about the story itself. Uh, it, it was a decent story. It was fairly enjoyable. But for me, it was, um, well, it sort of took the air of a spoof, and it was very much uh, in the vein of a P.G. Wodehouse story. It, it was on the edge of silly, and for me, there's a real fine line between uh, amusing and humorous within the context of the Doctor Who universe and something that crosses that line ever so slightly and becomes uh, a little bit hard to believe. And uh, I think I like Doctor Who best when I feel like it really could happen. I mean, even with all the the, the amazing elements like the TARDIS, you, you want to get the feeling that the TARDIS could land down the street from you and an adventure could happen. And for me, this one, because it was so lighthearted, um, stretched my ability to suspend my disbelief. Reginald Cumberly Bassett. Reggie, for short. Ah, any relation of Miss Bassett, the owner of Bassett Hall? I mean, not. But if you're planning on popping in for a convivial, I should warn you, she's not quite herself. No? Who is she, then? She started acting dash peculiar, ordering the staff to capture yours truly and doing unspeakable things to young girls. What sort of unspeakable thing? Things so dreadfully unspeakable, I would not wish to speak of them in the presence of a lady. What lady? Oh, oh, you mean Mabel. <clears throat> yes, you have a point. Mabel, 
It's not safe for a young lady at Bassett Hall. Yeah, I had kind of gathered that, sir. It is unashamedly a Roadhouse-style farce, and there are uh, strange coincidences and odd plot contrivances, and it is definitely played for laughs. And to be honest, usually this kind of thing really winds me up, certainly in the first season, when it uh, veered over the edge into too much humour. It annoyed me and bugged me and I didn't like it. But for some reason, I just absolutely love this story. I, I can't really understand why I shouldn't have done, because Tom is being over the top in the way that Tom does sometimes. Um, in fact, I, I found Tom's performance in this to be a little bit odd. It's all, he, he sounds like he's reading from a script uh, rather than being natural. And between that and the over-the-top nature of it, I, I shouldn't like this. I, it should annoy me. But it doesn't. I love it. I just absolutely loved it. I had a huge grin on my face the whole way through. Uh, I loved the performances. Uh, I, I thought that the humour was was very funny. And I found it hugely enjoyable. In fact, I'd go as far as say it's one of my favourite big finishes. It's And I don't really understand why, because all the little boxes should be irritating me. They, they should be me going, no, this is terrible. We're going into slapstick who. But... For some reason, it's worked for me on this one. <laughs> well, that's fun, and I'm absolutely thrilled that you found one that you enjoy so much. It's interesting that it's one that I found a little more average. And, and actually, for some of the same reasons you say, I had in my own notes, there were times when I felt like I was listening to actors reading a script. And when you talk about him being a little over the top, there there are sequences in here where he has to do pain on audio. And, and oddly enough, I always thought that was one of the things that he did superbly on video. I mean, the Tom Baker doctor could really look like he was suffering if he needed to look like he was suffering. But here on audio, it, it just sounded silly to me. You're right about the cleverness. There's some clever dialogue. There are some lines that, that, I, that I really enjoyed. Um, so it's not something I'd say was horrible by any stretch of the imagination. For me, it was just the word farce that you used is very appropriate to this. And, and I'm not always a big fan, I think, of farce. I did love Mary Tam's performance. I thought it was a slightly odd choice that for her first story opposite Tom, she spends almost the entire story not with Tom. Um, and they almost have two parallel adventures, um, which is a bit of an odd dynamic, having brought them together for the first time in, well, 30-odd years. But her performance was fantastic, and in fact, I thought that the very sort of cutting arch way that Romana is was a very good foil against the sort of farcical nature of what was going on around her, and I found made a great counterpoint, which is part of what I really enjoyed about it. Alan Cox plays the the butler and the gamekeeper, and I just loved his performance. It was so wonderfully deadpan, and you could just see him walking out of a Roadhouse novel. Aren't they going to come and try and switch it back on again? Yes, very likely, I should think. Why? I was just wondering whether it might not be a good idea to leave before they do. Oh, yes. Good point. I'm afraid <gasps> it may be a little late for that, sir. You may be interested to learn that I have been instructed to kill you. So, if you would both be so kind as to keep still, I will do my best to make the process as swift as possible. Oh, my Lord. For me, it was a really, really fun story and a great start to the second season. Uh, yeah, I can't recommend it highly enough. You know, one of the things I would recommend it for uh, is is the extras. That There's some good conversation with Tom Baker, as always, and he made a comment that I really liked about the nature of time travel and the fact that we can all go back in time through music and literature and the arts, and I, I, I thought that was really insightful. Uh, but then there's also a, a, a little tribute to Mary Tam that I found uh, very sweet, not as, uh, not as in-depth or as elaborate as I expected, but, but that was okay, just kind of some personal remembrances of working with Mary Tam at Big Finish, and that's worth listening to as well. So thank you very much, Ian and Michelle, for that. Uh, but I know that we've got uh, some interesting time over the summer coming up uh, to talk about Doctor Who, and there's plenty of stuff for us to talk about. There's new stuff from Big Finish, there'll be some new DVDs out, and of course, um, the Regenerations box set with uh, uh, the, uh, the the animated episode four of 10th planet uh, is going to be available in the world very very soon so plenty to talk about uh, plenty mm. to look forward to lots of uh, lots of news coming out of cardiff and lots of news coming out of the dwp as well so in the short term i should look forward to speaking to you anon indeed it's been great to speak to you again tom goodbye tom <laughs> goodbye trevor take it easy chaps bye bye, bye for now <laughs> that was the doctor who podcast which you can find at the doctor who podcast.com if you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter 
Facebook and via the Doctor Who podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.